0: Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. The probation system as we know it dates back to the progressive era, created to provide offenders with a supervised path to reintegrate into society. Contemporary critics say that probation is often arbitrarily enforced and is frequently a pipeline back to prison. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Assistant Professor of Sociology Michelle Phelps discusses her research on the probation system and how it disproportionately impacts African Americans. We caught up with her at her office at the U. Professor Phelps, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The United States is considered to have the largest prison population in the world. How does the rate of probation and the number of people on parole in this country correlate to the issue of mass incarceration?
1: Sure. So while the issue of mass incarceration is better known, it's actually better thought of as mass penal supervision or mass criminal justice control. So the United States is unusual both for the number of people that we have locked up in jails and prisons, but also the number of people who are under supervision on forms of what's called community supervision. So probation and parole. And the probation and parole are generally forms of supervision where you've been convicted of a criminal offense, you're under active supervision by a probation or parole officer, but you're still living in the community. So right now, there are over 4 million individuals on probation supervision and parole in the United States, um, compared to just over about 1 million incarcerated.
0: Does the high probation rate stem directly from the high incarceration rate?
1: So we have lots of thoughts about how the two are connected. Um, Interestingly, in the academic literature, we were so focused on the expansion of prisons that we actually sort of ignored this massive expansion in parallel in community supervision. Um, The way that the causal direction is often posited is that probation and parole, as sentences get ratcheted up, and... Judges increasingly feel like they ought to do something with these lower-level cases, and so that's often the kinds of cases that are getting dumped onto probation. So as the bar for what becomes acceptable to incarcerate somebody for gets lower, then the bar for what we want somebody on supervision in any form gets lower as well, and so both expanded simultaneously. And the problem is that once you have people on supervision, it's very difficult for them to complete successfully, and so there's a pathway from both probation and parole back to jail or prison.
0: Why do we use a parole system in the first place?
1: Yeah, so the distinction between probation and parole is interesting. So probation is a form of court-ordered community supervision that's given as a sanction for either Misdemeanor or felony level offenses. Parole, in contrast, is release after you get out of prison in most states. Um, in Minnesota, actually, uh, we call that supervised release, not parole. So, the difference is that you can be serving a massive sentence on probation. In some cases, lifetime probation in some states um, are greater than 10 years. Um, Whereas parole terms tend to be relatively limited and are often the amount of time that you were released from prison early, right? So, we will let you out of prison um, conditional on being on community supervision. And at least the theory is that if you give people, particularly for parole, that if you give people supervision, and supportive services while they're transitioning, that that will help um, both those individuals to make their lives better, but also the community by ensuring community safety. The problem is that historically, what we've done is we've put a lot of people on community supervision. We've made the resources that we give on community supervision very minimal. So the amount we actually help people with things like finding stable and affordable housing, finding employment, reconnecting with their families, all of that assistance tends to be fairly limited, but the monitoring tends to be pretty extensive. And both probation and parole come with a series of conditions or things that are now criminal behavior because you're under supervision. So in most states, you're not allowed to be in bars or drinking alcohol if you're under supervision. You're certainly not allowed to be doing things like smoking marijuana, which we know um, a big chunk of the population does. You may have curfews. You may have to pay fines and fees. Um, And so the problem is all of these obligations create more and more burdens for people and barriers for successful reintegration. Um, And so we basically set people up up to fail. So instead of helping them transition into the community, we create these really onerous demands that then cycle them back into jail or prison.
0: We're talking with Michelle Phelps. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Minnesota and a faculty affiliate at the Robina Institute of Criminal Law and Criminal Justice. Her research specialty is the sociology of punishment. Her current focus is the probation system and its correlation to mass incarceration. She and her colleagues, Professor Joshua Page and Philip Goodman, are the authors of Breaking the Pendulum, The Long Struggle Over Criminal Justice. Tell us a bit about the history of the probation system. How did this come into effect in the first place?
1: So the history of probation is interesting. It actually expands first during the progressive era. And the idea is that if you have, um, at first they weren't professionals, they were just uh, respected community leaders, that if you paired up somebody who had been convicted of a criminal offense with somebody who was a respected business leader in the community, that you could rehabilitate these folks without the damaging influence of incarceration. actually comes from this idea that um, incarceration may actually make people worse off, right? And so that if we can spare them that institutionalization, that we can um, create better outcomes. Um, And, uh, of course, importantly, at less cost for the state (laughs) because it's much cheaper to supervise somebody in the community than to incarcerate them. The problem is, again, that we really ratcheted down the level of deviance or criminal behavior required to get you that bump into prison um, and similarly that bump onto probation. So we now have lots and lots of people on probation who wouldn't 20 or 30 years ago have been under formal supervision um, and for whom it does very little except make their lives very difficult to complete on a day-to-day basis.
0: How long is a typical probation period?
1: Usually about two years, but it can really vary. So there can be shorter periods, and then again, the the tail of that can be very long, all the way up to for certain kinds of sex offenses, particularly, can be lifetime probation.
0: I imagine the probation period would vary considerably from state to state and maybe from state systems to federal systems?
1: Yep, and even county, courthouse to courthouse, judge to judge. Um, The Rabina Institute here actually at the U has done some great research looking at what the statutory guidelines are for probation. And in many states, it's quite broad and there's very little restrictions on the length of supervision, and so there's quite a bit of discretion. And what we know from the research is that if people are going to... return to jail or prison, that that often is front-loaded. It happens in the sort of early period of supervision. By the time you've got somebody who's successfully completed two years of supervision, that third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh year of supervision are increasingly cost ineffective.
0: African Americans are incarcerated at much higher rates than whites. Are a disproportionate number of African Americans also serving probation in this country?
1: Yes, but that disparity is less severe than for uh, imprisonment rates. Um, So if we look at criminal justice contact across all forms is concentrated among young men without a high school diploma. Those are the folks who are sort of most vulnerable for criminal justice contact. So if we look at those um, young men without a high school diploma, one in six black men and one in eight white men in the early 2010s, were on probation at some point during the year. And so we do see a racial disparity, but that gap um, between African Americans and whites is much smaller. So if you're a white American, um, your sort of most likely contact with the criminal justice system is actually probation. But if we look at who's getting incarcerated uh, after periods of probation supervision, there the the population looks much like the general prison population, which is um, Um, overwhelmingly young men of color. And so probation serves this really interesting role. For more privileged folks, I argue that probation is this diversionary pathway, right? So if you have a certain level of economic and social stability, meeting the demands of supervision is relatively easy, right? So for me, showing up to appointments on time, paying my fines and supervisions, um, being deferential to a probation officer, peeing clean in a a drug test cup or, or Taking the medicine that allows me to pee clean in a drug test cup, um, all of that would be fairly straightforward, right? But if you have somebody who is living in a neighborhood where There's a lot of social disorganization where there's not reliable transportation, where there's not um, reliable economic opportunities, where a lot of people in the neighborhood have criminal justice records, right? Because that's one of the bans is you can't associate with other known felons. Um, Where the only recreational opportunities are bars and clubs and places you're not allowed to be. Um, All of those make the, the barriers for completing supervision much, much more difficult.
0: How do Minnesota's incarceration and parole rates compare to the nation's? at large.
1: Yeah, so Minnesota is interesting. So we have a really low incarceration rate relative to the nation at large, although it's been slightly increasing in recent years. So we're sort of bucking the national trend both by being so low, um, but also by having recent upticks as opposed to recent declines. Uh, our probation population, however, is massive. So we have one of the highest um, probation populations in the country. And so one of, the, one of the answers to Minnesota exceptionalism in criminal justice is that we We funneled those populations into probation and then didn't pay as much attention to them and allowed ourselves to tell a story about how progressive our criminal justice system was um, that was really a a very partial account.
0: Tell us about the role of probation officers in the criminal justice system.
1: So the role of probation officers is to um, supervise probationers, simply put. The the challenge is what does that actually mean, right? Supervise and and ideally support. So most probation officers in the country today have caseloads of about 100 to 1. So that means they're actively supervising 100 probationers at any given time. So the, the content of that supervision winds up being these really quick sort of pro forma office visits for the most part. And one of the reforms that's rolling out across the country is trying to... Shake that up so that you can get more people who are on informal supervision or sort of checking in electronically, um, and then focus agents' time on the the more high risk or the more um, immediate need folks and folks who are newer to supervision, so that that relationship can have a, a meaningful supportive role. Um, you know, the, the challenge is uh, describing what's typical is just so varied, right? So um, probably the modal probation outcome is to see your probation officer relatively infrequently in the office, but probation officers also have the prerogative and some have the the time um, to go to your home to uh, at any point, um, to go to your place of business at any point, to be in your community, to be driving around, in some cases, paired with police officers running raids in the community. Um, so that relationship can just look really different.
0: What are some of the most common parole violations? You mentioned the conditions that are imposed on parolees. What uh, provisions do they typically violate?
1: If we look at people who are in jail or prison who were on probation or parole at the time of arrest, about 4 in 10 were on probation or parole at the time of arrest. And so among that population, among that 40 percent who were on community supervision, about a third of the jail population and about a fifth of those in prison are there for what we call technical violations. And that's excluding new arrests. So technical violations are these violations of the conditions of supervision. And some of the most common ones are dirty drug screens, um, not reporting to your probation or parole officer. The technical term for that is absconding, not paying your fines and fees. And we don't have great data, unfortunately. There's a sense that what's happening often is that people are racking up a series of violations that aren't responded to, and then they're revoked after a series of non-responses unfortunately, we don't have great data on that. So we can't say how many violations the person had racked up initially. Uh, Meek Mill was recently in the news. Uh, He was sent to prison for violating his probation. And his violations included a new arrest for a fight and something around uh, a dirt bike wheelie, (laughs) which is uh, made for some interesting headlines, um, and then not abiding by travel restrictions. So it can just really vary. And I think that's one of the real stresses of being under supervision is that it's possible that you'll get a very lenient officer or one who is not paying particular attention to your case and you can rack up a series of arrest charges with nobody noticing. It's also possible that you go into the office, you do everything right, you have one dirty urine screen because you inhaled some marijuana smoke and you're revoked for that, right? So there's a sense of arbitrariness to it.
0: Do we even have enough resources to supervise the number of people currently on probation? You've suggested we don't.
1: Yeah, so I think the right now what we've done is funneled more and more people onto supervision and given community supervision fewer and fewer resources. I think the challenge with the resource question is that often when we throw more resources at the question, what we do is we provide more intensive supervision that then allows us to detect more technical violations and so you get more people revoked. So if your goal is to really help people reintegrate to protect the community by helping folks who are on probation and parole lead successful lives, Um, then what you would want is for those resources to go towards supportive services. And that historically in probation and parole has been very, very difficult to uh, accomplish without um, a rise in monitoring that leads to more technical violation. I think the, the first part of the answer is we need to have Um, a radically scaled-back population so that it's really people who are under supervision for a compelling reason. Uh, And then I think we have to do more to support those people in their transition back into the community.
0: How can we ensure that the process of dealing with people when they violate their probation conditions is not arbitrary?
1: So there's different schools of thought on this. A a lot of departments are trying to move towards mandatory guidelines, uh, much in the way that we have sentencing guidelines for judges having guidelines about violations for POs. And one of the nice things about guidelines is that a lot of um, POs, particularly for more higher risk parole populations, are very risk averse, right? If something horrific were to happen um, by somebody on their charge, right, what would that mean that they had sort of fallen asleep at the wheel? Um, And so if you create uh, guidelines that allows everybody sort of a cover of uh, official process, and in a lot of places what they're trying to do is make the initial responses fairly mild right so respond right instead of this pattern of violation no response violation no response <laughs> violation no response violation i revoke you <laughs> right instead at the first violation let's meaningfully address that behavior, right? So if it's substance abuse related, let's increase um, AA or NA meetings, right? Or, or get you into a counseling program, right? Try to do something that addresses the root cause of why you're violating. Um, that ideally is a less punitive reaction that is supportive, um, but again, quicker uh, to respond, the other thing that states are innovating with um, and, and that some advocates are starting to call for is that we really shouldn't be criminalizing conditions at all, right? So there's an argument that dirty drug tests should not be a reason to incarcerate somebody, right? If that's not a reason that we would incarcerate somebody who wasn't on supervision, it shouldn't be a reason that we incarcerate somebody even if they are on supervision, that's fairly controversial and hasn't um, made a ton of traction yet, but it is something that jurisdictions are at least starting to think about is what are the conditions that we actually want to enforce and what are the conditions that should, should allow somebody to be reincarcerated, right? So sometimes judges will add a whole series of conditions that they think are helpful, so things like you have to go and get your GED, Well, that may seem like a good idea at the time, but are you really saying that you would re-imprison this person if they don't go get their GED, right? So there needs to be a way to communicate goals for supervision that are separate from the conditions that we're going to enforce,
0: We're talking with Michelle Phelps. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Minnesota and a faculty affiliate at the Robina Institute of Criminal Law and Criminal Justice. Her research specialty is the sociology of punishment. Her current focus is the probation system and its correlation to mass incarceration. She and her colleagues, Professor Joshua Page and Philip Goodman, are the authors of Breaking the Pendulum, The Long Struggle Over Criminal Justice. How can we reduce probation rates?
1: So for probation, the answer is we just sentence fewer people to probation. <laughs> um, you know, the the big story of why probation rates expanded so massively is not one of expanding term lengths, but is more one of more and more people under supervision. So we have to fundamentally get more comfortable with either police uh, arresting fewer people for low-level behavior. Or throwing those charges out of the court uh, more quickly. There is some some movement in some jurisdictions to incentivize good behavior on probation by allowing for early discharge, um, which has in some places had uh, positive if somewhat modest effects on the population by getting the um, people to complete quicker.
0: Aside from eliminating probationary periods altogether, what are some of the alternatives to probation?
1: So, you know, probation is sort of thought of as the alternative. (laughs) The alternative, um, often we don't think to what, right? Um, If you look up the formal definition of probation, it's the alternative to prison. But in fact, as we've talked about, half of the probation population is under supervision for misdemeanor offenses that never would have been eligible for prison time in the first place. And so in that case, what probation is an alternative to is go and sin no more, right? You have a criminal conviction for this low-level charge, and we're going to say, okay, time served, you're out of here. Instead, we say to that person, okay, now you're under two years of informal probation supervision and two years of legal vulnerability and obligation, financial obligations to the court and the probation department.
0: Can we look to other countries' legal systems for some input as to how we could improve the probation system?
1: So the international comparison question with probation is interesting because um, we're not as much of a horrific international outlier as we are with incarceration. So because other countries tend to have lower incarceration rates, they also tend to have higher community supervision rates. Um, and there's actually a, a whole literature spawning about community supervision in Europe, which has really expanded over the last decade um, somewhat quietly. And there, you know, the history of criminal justice is much more infused with a social welfare background, uh, but that's starting to shift. So in England, for instance, they recently privatized probation uh, for lower-level clients Um, And um, made that no longer a state welfare function. Um, So, we're starting to see some of the quote unquote innovations from the United States being exported elsewhere, and we're starting to see other countries get more punitive with their um, community supervision. So, unfortunately, those lessons are sort of going. Uh, in the wrong direction.
0: (laughs) There are some indications that the incarceration rates in the U.S. are beginning to decline. Are we seeing a decline in the probation rates as well?
1: Yes, so in the last couple of years, probation rates have gone down as prison rates have gone down. The one population that's still climbing is parole rates, uh, and that's because some of the ways some states are declining their prison populations is by letting people onto parole early. Um, probation seems to be the numbers are still pretty modest the decline is pretty modest and there's still just a you know just under four million people on probation so it's still a massive population but it does look like we're managing to shrink both prison and um, probation populations at the same time Uh, but that's not true with parole
0: Michelle Phelps is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Minnesota and a faculty affiliate at the Robina Institute of Criminal Law and Criminal Justice. Her research specialty is the sociology of punishment. Her current focus is the probation system and its correlation to mass incarceration. She and her colleagues, Professor Joshua Page and Philip Goodman, are the authors of Breaking the Pendulum, the Long Struggle over Criminal Justice. Professor Phelps, Thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I loved playing high school sports. I loved the competition, the camaraderie, the bands, the crowds, all the pageantry. And I wanted to keep playing. But I graduated. No colleges called and neither did the pros. So? to stay close to the game I loved, I decided to become a high school official. You know, a referee. When I played high school sports, I learned the importance of integrity, good sportsmanship, and respect for the rules. Now as a high school official, I get to help model these same values to others. Maybe the colleges and the pros didn't call, but the kids in Minnesota did. And now, I'm enjoying the competition, the camaraderie, the bands, the crowds, and all the pageantry of high school sports all over again. This message presented by the Minnesota State High School League and the Minnesota Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. If you're me, we'll hear you We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy, so we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov.